Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. I'll admit that meditation doesn't come easy to me, but despite this, I strive to make it a daily practice. Why? Because I believe in the science, and it has incredible benefits to both your physical and your mental health. And for someone like me who struggles with anxiety, a meditation practice can be a valuable tool for taming those anxious feelings when they creep up during the day. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dan Harris. Dan is a longtime anchor and Emmy Award-winning correspondent at ABC News. He is also the creator of the podcast and app, 10% Happier, and the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start. Um, tell us your story, how you found meditation. Uh, well, quite <laughs> famously or infamously, I had a panic attack on, on national television many years ago, back in 2004. And um, that kind of set me off on this on this strange quest to, to you know, be less stupid um and because the panic attack had been caused uh, by some dumb behavior in my personal life i had uh, spent a lot of time in war zones as a young ambitious reporter that wasn't the dumb part although maybe some people could argue that was dumb but the dumb part was that i came home and got depressed and then self-medicated with recreational mm -hmm. drugs including cocaine and even though i wasn't high on the air uh, it was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out uh, after, after, you know, going through all of that, I, I started kind of looking around to get a sense of, you know, how I, as I said before, be, be less of a moron and also just be happier, less stressed. Cause my job is very, very stressful. Um, and it didn't happen right away, but over time I eventually started to see that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of science that strongly suggests that meditation is really good for you. And, I had never really thought about meditation before. I, to the extent that I ever considered it, I thought it was, you know, hippie nonsense. Um, but the science was very compelling. And so that's that's really how I got started. Yeah, and you you kind of call yourself a, a reluctant meditator. <laughs> so, so, so why is that? Because I think a lot of people have that experience or perhaps that same sentiment, especially when first starting out, because we, we just don't feel like we're doing it right. Um, so can you talk about what doing it right and doing it wrong perhaps looks like? Yeah, I mean, this is a big issue that people have, yeah. myself included, of, you know, the, wondering whether you're meditating correctly. So but probably makes sense for me to describe 
the initial instructions for meditation, um, the thing to say first is that um, the word meditation is a little bit like the word sports. It describes <laughs> a whole range of activities. When I talk about meditation, I'm talking about mindfulness meditation, which is okay. the kind of meditation that's been the study that has been studied the most in the labs, and it is derived from Buddhism, but really is secularized, stripped of any religious lingo or metaphysical claims, and that's what has allowed it to be studied so extensively um, by scientists. And you know the results seem to show that it, you know, uh, can lower your blood pressure and boost your immune system, rewire key parts of the brain that have to do with attention regulation and stress and compassion and self-awareness. And so it's pretty exciting. Um, there are, for beginning mindfulness meditation, there are really only three steps. The first is to get, get into a comfortable position. You, you can, um, you can sit cross-legged if you want, but I'm, I'm nearly 50 and not limber. So I just sit in a chair and but you can also stand up, you can lie down, there's any number of ways you can do it. Um, but it's nice to have a, a sort of a dignified posture. You don't have to be uptight about it. But And the second step is to uh, you know close your eyes and bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Just like pick one spot, like the feeling of your rising and falling of your belly or the rising and falling of your chest or the air coming in and out of your nose. And then the third step is the most important, which is as soon as you try to do this, you know, as soon as you try to just pick one neutral thing and pay attention to it, <laughs> your mind will go nuts, you know, all sorts of random thoughts and urges and emotions and distractions and expletive spilled, ex expletive filled speeches you're going to deliver to your boss in a blaze of glory, blah, blah, blah. All of this stuff will come up. And that is the moment when most people tell themselves a story about how they are a failed meditator. They can never do this. They're uniquely uh, um, messed up. They have this sort of bespoke lunacy. Um, the good news and the bad news is you're not special. This is the way the mind works. And the fact that you've noticed you've become distracted is proof that you're meditating correctly because the whole game in meditation is to sit, to try to focus on one thing, usually the feeling of your breath, although there are other objects of meditation we can pick. Just try to focus on one thing, and then every time you get distracted, you notice it, blow it a kiss, and start again, and again, and again. And you have to do this a million times. This is like a, a golf game with a million <laughs> mulligans. The whole game is just to notice you've become distracted and start again, and again, and again. It's like a bicep curl for your brain, and this is what shows up on the brain scans of people who meditate. And, and so that... That is, I think, the heart of the misunderstanding that people think getting distracted means they're doing it incorrectly. But in fact, the f noticing the distraction is proof that you're a success. Yeah. And I, I think for me, I, I had always believed that meditation was, you know, turning off my brain or somehow quieting my brain, like quieting those thoughts until I learned differently. So I think that's a kind of another another uh, string of that of that myth, right? Is that you you somehow, we somehow have the power to turn off our brain, which just isn't possible. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so, I've got a whole rap about that. Like- uh, Go for it, give me the rap. <laughs> well, it's just it's not that long. It's just that I, I often tell the same joke over and over, which is that clearing your mind, which is the most pernicious misconception around meditation, that, that it requires clearing your mind, Clearing your mind is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. Uh, 
Um, and just knowing that is really useful. The, the yes. goal here is not to clear your mind. The goal is to focus your mind for just a few nanoseconds at a time. And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And, and you, you just need to hear this over and over and over again. Even I do. You know, I, I meditate every day, often for long periods of time. I go on meditation retreats and, and, and constantly I'm having to be reminded I'm not a failure. So it's just the way it is. That, that, is, that is the sort of ground truth of meditation. So let's kind of back up and talk a little bit more about the science and what it actually does to your brain and, and, and your body. And, and, and what does that mean? How does that show up in our life? Um, you talk about it kind of as 10% happier, but what is it, what does meditation kind of allow us to do better or do differently? Yeah. So before I get to the science, I think just picking up on that description of the practice what the benefit is, well, there are, there are a few benefits. Two most prominent ones, at least for beginners, are uh, focus. So this repeated exercise of trying to focus on one thing at a time, and then when you get distracted, you start again and again. This shows up, again, on the brain scans. You can see in the area of the prefrontal cortex, in the area that, that regulates our ability to pay attention or to focus, that changes on, uh, among meditators because, you're again, you're doing this activity where you try to just feel your breath coming and going uh, or you're, you're, there are other things you can focus on in meditation. The term of art there is your meditation object. So it can be your breath. It can be sounds in the environment. It can be a mantra, whatever, whatever, whatever you're doing in meditation, the common denominator generally is you're trying to focus on something in the present moment right now. And then you bake into the cake that you're going to get distracted a million times and start again a million times. And that works on your ability to focus. So that's a huge benefit in a time when we're just pulled in a million directions all the time. Uh, multitasking, which is a computer term, multitasking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We are don't have multi. We don't have several processors. We have one brain. We can only pay attention to one thing at a time, and so multitasking is really bad for the brain. So, and, so everybody and should brain. take that off of their resume if it's on their resume. Yes, you should. <laughs> you definitely should. Um, so that's one big benefit. The other is is mindfulness. So I, I said, this is mindfulness meditation. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it. So what we're doing in meditation is, is engineering a, a deliberate collision between you and the voice in your head or your ego or the, the inner narrator, whatever you want to call it. But a lot of us don't even realize this is happening that for me that this was a huge aha moment on my path to meditation which was when it was pointed out to me that i have this voice in my head who's usually complete jerk and criticizing me and com i'm comparing myself to other people judging other people wanting stuff not wanting stuff thinking about the past thinking about the future instead of paying attention to what's happening right now and uh, when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation it owns you you know and and this yeah. is why we do things that we don't know why we did later. Why did I just eat a whole sleeve of Oreos? Or why did I say something that ruined the next 48 hours of my marriage or whatever? The It's all because you're just being yanked around by this voice in your head, this by this conversation, which if we broadcast aloud, you would be locked up. Um, <laughs> but this is this, this constant nattering 
this cacophony, this tumult is playing out in our heads all the time, mostly below the level of consciousness. We're not really aware that this is happening. And in meditation, you get uh, you, you just drink from the fire hose. This is why people think they're failures. They sit and they try to focus on their breath and then all this stuff comes up. Um, but that's good. What you want to do in meditation is to see that this is what your life is actually all about. <laughs> and then when you see it, it doesn't own you as much. So is that and, is that painful for some people, some of the stuff that comes up? I would imagine, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say if it's not painful, you, then you're probably doing it wrong. Doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's If only good things are coming up. <laughs> well, then I want your mind uh, or you're in like really effective denial. Um, you know, I mean, that that's the point. The point isn't that it's like Calgon, take me away. Right. You know, people go into meditation expecting to either clear their minds or they're going to they're going to have the beatific look on the face of the Buddha statue, which sits outside the spa at the airport or whatever. Uh, that's, that's not how it's going to go. The point, what the Buddha was doing in meditation was sitting there and just saying, let it rip all yeah. of the horror of the mind and all of the beauty of the mind. Mm -hmm. I can sit with it and be cool. Regardless that of is a is. incredible skill. Yeah. That's mindfulness. That is, uh, can I, as my, you know, we live in a universe and this is non-negotiable. We live in a universe that is characterized by impermanence. Everything's changing all the time. Every, we and everybody we know will die. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That is just the way it is. Most things are out of our control. So can we navigate life with some equanimity in a supple way, instead of just being constantly buffeted by the, things that we think are good or the things we think are bad. We're just yanked around all the time between these two poles of I want it or I don't want it, or there's a third pole, which is I don't care. But can you step out of the traffic and view the contents of your consciousness, your powerful emotions, your urges, your thoughts with some non-judgmental remove? That's the big skill in meditation. And it allows you to respond wisely to the things in your life instead of reacting blindly. And and that, you know, again, it's not a passivity, uh, you know, just to take the Buddha example here, um, you know, that that if, if you know anything about the life of the Buddha, he was very ambitious. Uh, you know, he built a he hung out with kings and merchants and built a huge uh, following of of meditation practitioners. Being a meditator doesn't mean that you're just, you know, sitting in loincloth uh, <laughs> on the on a outcropping of rock in the Himalayas all day long. It really is a way to allow you to engage in the world in a more effective way so that you're less emotionally reactive, more focused. And again, back to the science, which just shows is that people who meditate, as I said before, tend to have lower blood pressure, boosted immune system. Um, the area of the brain associated with stress has been shown to get smaller. The area of the brain associated with self-awareness and also compassion tends to get bigger. So it's really interesting results. It's not a panacea, the, hence my whole 10% happier shtick, mm -hmm. but it is a science-based, simple, secular exercise for your brain that can make a real difference over time. Yeah. So, and I know you get asked this all the time, but you just brought it up. 10% happier. Why, why 10%? Let's just go there. I was kind of a joke. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the backstory, the, the, the actual real story is that I was, this was a while ago in like 2010, I, uh, went on a meditation retreat. I, 
the year prior in 2009, I had gotten interested in meditation. And I had very quickly decided I wanted to write a book about it because I realized that there weren't a lot of books that, um, there were a lot of really good books, but they were all pretty annoying to me um, in the, in their tone. And so I wanted to write a book that had like the F word in it and told embarrassing stories and, you know, about drugs and relatable, stuff. right? <laughs> yeah. I wanted it to be relatable to skeptics and because I wanted to, but I also wanted to know what I was talking about. So I decided to go on a meditation retreat, which is not something everybody, you, if you want to be a meditator, you don't have to go on a meditation retreat, but I, I thought it would be a good copy for the book. Um, and, and it, it was, was. Uh, yes, it <laughs> definitely was. Uh, it was quite an experience. But anyway, I'll set that aside. When I came home, I was talking to one of my colleagues at work. She's a very longtime close friend and mentor. Uh, and she asked me sort of like derisively, you know, why did you go on a meditation retreat? What's up with you? You got to use, you used to be somewhat cool. And I was I had been searching for a while like uh, about how to talk about this without it being embarrassing. And I said, oh, you know, it makes me like 10% happier. And I could see that the look on her face changed from scorn to mild interest. And I thought, okay, okay, there's, that's my shtick. <laughs> um, and I like it because it's counter-programming against the over-promising that you find right. in the darker precincts of, of the self-help world. Um. I also like it because it's, you know, it's again, it's a, it's a joke, but it's largely true in that, you know, you it's not going to solve all of your problems, meditation, but it does boost your ability to deal with whatever life throws your way. It also sort of puts my experience kind of put my basic baseline level of happiness a notch or two higher. And then the other thing about it, um, and this will, I think, make sense with folks, you know, with a business background here, that it's it's an investment that that really does compound annually. You know, the 10 percent just grows yeah. um, in, in quite dramatic ways. And um, and that speaks to really the most exciting part of this, which is that happiness, which a lot of us kind of think of consciously or subconsciously as something that happens to us. But actually, happiness is a skill. And that you can take responsibility for. And this is, you know, this is what the brain science is showing us that you can do this thing and change your brain in salutary ways. And um, again, it doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick. It just means that whatever uh, you're, you're going to wring more enjoyment out of life, probably. And in the down parts of life, the where things that are, are difficult, uh, I think you'll you'll find that you're more resilient. And so let's, I mean, I know you say 10% happier, but, you know, this practice of mindful meditation and your, you know, curiosity and commitment to it, it has changed your life. And so what what ways has it changed your life? And can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm like 12 years into it. Um, <laughs> so you've compounded and, 10% per, 10 yeah, over 12 years, exactly. right? <laughs> Exactly. Um, I am not good at math, so I don't even know what that would mean. Me but, neither. Um, I just work with a bunch of accountants. <laughs> yeah, so there are audiences out there like are, they've already finished that calculation. Um, yeah. So, I mean, on the superficial level, it changed my life because, um, you know, I wrote uh, I wrote this book came out in 2014, took me like five years to get it done because I'd never written a book before. Um, and I didn't th I thought it would kind of be mildly embarrassing and then go away. Uh, but but it came out at the exact right time. 
medit in the meditation hype cycle. It was, you know, meditation was starting to get cool at that time. And, um, also I had the backing of the, you know, probably the largest media company in the world. <laughs> so I got a lot of promotion and, you know, I had this video of me having a panic attack. So lots of other shows wanted to have me on to talk about it. And, um, it just kind of took off in ways that I honestly was not expecting. It was, it was really cool. It was like the coolest professional thing that ever happened to me, <laughs> but it kind of swallowed my life. And, and in that, um, you know, it became, you know, I have a podcast now and I have, uh, a, a venture backed startup that is a meditation that we, we make a meditation app. Yeah. Um, uh, I give speeches. Um, I've I'm writing more books on the subject. Uh, so it's really, it, it, that has, that has been a huge change, but in terms of my happiness level, you know, I, I mean, and, and the impact of meditation and the sort of, I, I've also become quite interested in the, the, uh, Buddhist, uh, philosophy and practices that undergird it. Um, it's had a massive impact, you know, just, uh, it's just taking all of the benefits that we've talked about thus far, you know, a greater sense of focus and uh, really more importantly, a, a greater sense of mindfulness, which allows you to sort of watch your mind with some non-judgmental remove. And it just, you're just developing it further all the time. That's what will happen if you do the practice. And um, you just get better and better at just the way you would with golf or um, uh, playing an instrument. Although, you know, here the, there are no physical limitations. So I can't catch up with LeBron, but <laughs> conceivably given enough time, I could catch up with, you know, a great meditator, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's really, uh, it, it's a very meaningful part of my life. I do, I try to go on meditation retreat once or twice a year and I try to practice for a significant amount every day. And, um, what about your family? Do they, do you meditate together or do you teaching no. your kids to meditate? No. No. <laughs> what does that wife, look like as a family unit? <laughs> it doesn't look like anything. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I have learned the hard way to not be, I am definitely a meditation evangelist, right? So that is my, that is my role on the planet. Uh, I think, um, that's the, this is the most valuable thing I can do, uh, with my time here for the greater community. But my, um, my rule is that I don't talk about meditation unless somebody asks me to talk mm. about meditation. And so you asked me to come on the podcast and I'll talk about this all day. I love talking about it. Really. I love talking about it. Um, but I, when I first started meditating, I kind of bullied my wife about it and it was very annoying. <laughs> and so she's had a bit of a, a long-term bad attitude about it. I mean, not so much. I mean, she's not, yeah. I mean, she's a, she's a scientist. So she, well, she appreciates the, the fact that you're 10% happier. <laughs> she, she appreciates the fact that I'm less of a jerk for sure. Because I, you know, I definitely was, I, and still am, you know, I could have, you know, I'm a news network news anchor. So there's a bit of a prima donna in me, the hard worker in me, the, the, um, I'm a journalist, so I can ask hard questions at inappropriate times. And so, yeah, there are lots of things about my sharp edges in my personality that have been shaved off, I think, in ways that have made her life easier. So she's not a meditation skeptic. She's just you know, doesn't do it every day. And I don't mention it to her. Um, my son is six. Um, I also and 
you know, I, I don't know if this is laziness, but I, but my instinct with him is that I'm not, I mean, he knows that I, you know, I just came back from a meditation retreat and he knows that I, he'll sometimes find me meditating. Um, so he knows that it's happening, but I don't push it on him. Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, I, I've heard when, during COVID, when they were doing remote school, I could hear that occasionally the teacher would have the kids do it, yeah. but I really try not to push it on him because I don't want him to reject it because daddy was annoying about it. Um, <laughs> Actually, I'm thinking about writing a children's book called Daddy is Annoying, um, <laughs> uh, where uh, a kid is dealing with an annoying daddy and then the mommy comes in and teaches the kid how to meditate as a way to uh, put up with a daddy making stupid jokes all the time. Um, but I, I, that and aside- And that's not reflective of your life at all, right? <laughs> oh, no, no, that's, that's uh, asking for a friend. Um, so, I mean, setting that aside, yeah. uh, that long aside, I, I, my my thing with kids, and this is what I often say to parents uh, who are who want to introduce this practice to their kids, is, you know, I think if you want to have a mindful kid, the most important variable is, are you a mindful parent? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think I interpolate back to my experience with my parents, who were great parents. I had great parents. And and. I don't do anything they told me to do explicitly. In other words, you know, I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch TV and now I work on television and um, they were really strict about sweets and I'm definitely a daily dessert eater. And um, so I, I, you know, all of the rules they had, I flout on the regular, but all the things they did, you know, actually did in their own life, I do. Uh, So they were very serious Mm -hmm. about their marriage. I am two they were both physicians they're very serious about their work and their patients and that's a huge issue for me i mean i'm not a physician but i'm very serious about my work they were they were really dedicated to their kids i try to be very dedicated to my son they're very dedicated to exercise i too do that so i feel like kids do what they see not what they're told to do and so with my son i just try to be cool about it even though there are times when i want to lecture him but keep my mouth shut and just do my thing and hopefully he'll just pick it up by osmosis yeah, yeah. So, a couple of things that you talked about. You mentioned LeBron. Let's talk about meditation and you know high performance because I think that's an- another myth that perhaps we didn't cover as deeply. Um, you know that I hear is you know well if I meditate and you know is it gonna is it gonna calm me down so much that I'm not able to you know perform in a in a high stakes high stress high performance environment. Yeah, I love this question. And it's, you know, I wrestled with this (laughs) mightily in my early days, and I still do sometimes. Um, But it's a huge theme in in the first book I wrote. Um, So I mean, it really, it really goes to a cultural misunderstanding about the term happiness. You know, people are worried if I get too happy, I'll be ineffective. Um, and that's interesting because our, our, our ambivalence about the term happiness is reflected in the roots of the word, the linguistic roots of the word, you know, H-A-P, that's the same root of words like haphazard or hapless. So it suggests luck. Um, and, uh, so we we have mixed feelings, I think ab- about happiness and don't fully understand it. And I, I actually think that I have even trouble finding a good definition of it. Oh, we can talk about that in a second. But but I think when people worry that they're going to become ineffective because they're happier, I think they're they're replacing happiness with complacency. And happiness, real happiness as I understand it, has nothing to do with resting on your laurels or being lazy. It just means that you're dealing with what life throws at you in a more successful way. So it's not passive. 
I think you can be a very happy warrior, um, whether that means you're in the, in the service, in the armed services, or if you're a, um, uh, somebody who's trying to make change in a workplace, or if you're a, um, in, uh, into activism. I think there are lots of ways you can do all of that and be happy. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, a unicorn barfing rainbows all the time. That's not real happiness or sustainable happiness it means that your life has a sense of meaning it means that you have good relationships and uh that you have work that you feel that you're effective at and what do you think is going to contribute to that do you think having greater focus greater calm and less emotional reactivity is going to make you better at those things i think most likely yes and if you look around at the people who are meditating in the c-suites in the in in the corporate world uh, at the highest echelons of the tech world, all throughout the sports world, uh, in the entertainment world, in the journalism world. You know, uh, these are not ineffective, lazy, passive people. They're highly, highly functioning people, high performance people. And, you know, particularly in the sports world, it's really about like making you, I've heard it called zone ready. Like it gets you more, it, it gives you greater access to getting into the zone. And yeah, so I, I think you can put a spike in through the heart of this misconception. <laughs> I like it, a spike through the heart. So um, if you could go back and, uh, and give yourself one piece of advice before your panic attack on air, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> you know, I've thought about, I asked my brother once, I, my, my brother is a, my younger brother, although everybody thinks he's older because he's more mature and more <laughs> successful. Um, very smart, very menschy guy. And I remember one time asking him, what advice would you give to yourself years before? And he said, don't worry so much. And <laughs> I feel I would, uh, I, it's an easier, it's easier said than done. Um, cause I still am a worrier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the old version of me was so, so uptight and so worried about so many things um, that it made me unhappy and that made me unpleasant to be around. And it it was to the detriment of my relationships, which then made me more unhappy. Um, and that's a very easily accessible downward spiral. A friend of mine calls it the toilet vortex. And what I know now is that there's uh, an opposite spiral that's available to you. And I uh, think, I call it the cheesy upward spiral where, you know, your inner weather gets bombier through meditation and other modalities like therapy or having access to nature, getting enough is, sleep. Is this, is this embrace the cheese? Cause Ariana Huffington yes. told me yes. to, to, to ask you about that. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is related to this related to that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get, I'll get and get to that next, but, okay. but um, the, yeah, I've been thinking about that as a title for my next book. Um, the, but this cheesy upward spiral or the gooey upward spiral, whatever you want to call it, is like you, your inner weather gets better. Your relationships get better as an as a inexorable consequence because you're easier to be around. Yeah. Given that relationships are the most important variable in human flourishing, you will then get happier and then your relationships will get better and then you'll get happier. And that cycle is available to you. I mean, that doesn't mean, you know that the toilet vortex goes away as an option. So both of the, I've, I go into both of these spirals, not infrequently, but I am much more prone to going into the upwards one. All right. So tell us, embrace the cheese. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, I, um, there's a, there, we've been talking about mindfulness meditation, but there's, 
alongside mindfulness meditation, a, a kind of meditation that's, um, or a set of meditation practices that are traditionally have been taught, you know, over the, you know, past millennia, there were, uh, there was a whole set of uh, meditation practices that were taught alongside it that were designed to boost your ability to be compassionate, friendly, um, kind, et cetera, et cetera. And when I first heard about these practices, I a lot of people love them, so I, I, I don't want to denigrate these practices. But when I first heard about them, I thought they were just impossibly cheesy. Um, you know, they involve kind of envisioning people or animals and then sending them phrases like, may you be happy, may you be healthy. kindness. Yeah. Yes, love and kindness is one. Mm -hmm. That's one of the flavors of of these, of this sort of set of practices. But I sort of have had a very negative reaction to it. Thought it was really really cheesy. And um, but I started to do it in part because uh, I, I, there's a lot of science to back up these practices. A lot, even though they don't get, they don't get a lot of airtime in the culture as much as mindfulness meditation, which is much easier and kind of less embarrassing to talk about. These other practices uh, have there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they have all sorts of physiological, psychological, and behavioral impacts. And so I started to get more interested in them in recent years and doing whole retreats where I would do just loving kindness meditation for ten days and um, and um, you know, I still, there was still some reluctance to accept it in particular to accept it as it applies to myself, because, uh, you know, I, my own inner dialogue is quite toxic often and to embrace these practices where you're kinder to yourself, they're off, it's often called self-compassion. That's the psychological yeah. term, you know, term of art. Um, and so what I, I have found is just kind of getting over myself and embracing the cheese has been has, is really what allows me to get on the upward spiral that I've been talking about with more regularity. And it just, because my, my inner dialogue, you know, once you start to meditate and you become more self-aware, you more mindful, you see just how nasty you are to yourself. Yeah. And that's reprogrammable. And through, through meditation practices and other sort of cognitive practices that you can do, uh, and therapy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm very interested in that. And again, for people like me, particularly, I think males um, in in a in a culture that has a lot of sexism threading through it, um, it can there there can be a negative reaction to it. It can seem treacly or earnest or whatever. Um, but I'm all about you know embracing the cheese these days and just kind of like you know whatever. That. Maybe it's a little embarrassing, but uh, it makes me way happier. <laughs> I don't think it's embarrassing at all. I love it. Um, so, so tell us about your, you know, in the in the last couple minutes here, tell us about your new book. I think I heard you say on one of your podcasts that it's about love. Did I make that up, or is that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, you didn't make it up, and it's it's, it's like speaking of embarrassing. Like I never ever thought I would. I write set a book you up for love. that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like, I am the least likely sort of love guru. I mean, I'm not a guru, but uh, or whatever love proponent, whatever it is uh, that you can imagine. It's not like my meditation jag was like, you know, Thanos to Care Bears. I mean, it's just not an obvious fit. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, my, by nature, I am, you know, a little bit of a sort of frosty New Englander. I'm skeptical. I'm very ambitious. It's not... You know, I have warm relationships in my life, you know, with my parents, and my wife, and my children, but it's, you know, I, you, you wouldn't call me, you know, warm and fuzzy generally. Um, and 
that's changing, you know, and, and I can see how my life is getting way better as a result. And, mm. you know, I was at first interested in, in this book in, in writing, you know, trying to give a little bit more airtime to the practices that I've been talking about, like loving kindness meditation. And my initial goal was, let's, let's look at this and, and, uh, you know, teaching people how to be friendlier, you know, internally and more compassionate. And, um, and then I started getting inter interested in things like civility in the workplace, politeness, mm -hmm. um, reducing your biases, um, uh, you know, sort of as a way to get at issues of prejudice. And I, and I, I, at some point, several years into the project, and I was looking at this kind of set of skills I was trying to promote, I realized like it could all fall under the concept of love. <laughs> and I remember the first time I heard myself say that aloud, I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm writing. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, it's come to this. Uh, but that is that is what I'm writing about. And I kind of want to, you know, love is such a culturally fraught term. You know, we, yeah. we use it generally to talk about romantic love, which is a right. very narrow band of human activity. Yeah. But it gets a lot of airtime in, in the movies. Mm -hmm. And maybe we talk about love, you know, to, to for family or I love chocolate or whatever, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty, we use it in narrow selective ways, but in, in other languages and in other cultures, there are, there are many words for love right. because there are, there are lots of ways to think about this. And I think us having one word and having a, a media, you know, in the movies in, and pop songs in particular that talk about it in this exalted way, that's, you know, almost pretty rarely accessed by any of us. And we may have a moment of, string music love early on in our relationship but generally speaking it falls back into sort of more mundane rhythm that takes more work and um i i like to think of love and there's some there there's some there's a view in the scientific community that seems to support this more as anything north of neutral just our human mammalian capacity to care and that that is omnidirectional so it's not just for other people, but it's also for ourselves. Right. You can, I mean, and again, self-love, which is is often sold to us in kind of oily or uh, unctuous ways, is is not about complacency. It's about like treating yourself the way a good coach would treat you. Right. Good coach cares about your well-being, but might have you run sprints. And that's that's the way I understand self-love or self-compassion. And and so just thinking about all of this as a broad set of um uh, uh of in the human repertoire and then that there are all of these exercises you can do to boost this ability and so that in the end you can view love as a as a big category and a skill mm -hmm. and that so it's not a factory you know it's not like you're born with factory settings that limit how loving you can be to yourself and others Right. That these are skills that you can develop, and and there's enormous amounts of evidence that su that suggests that it will change your life on many many levels. And I've seen that in my own life, and so that's what I'm writing about. And and when is it due out? Is there a timeline on this? <laughs> I've put it off now by two years because <laughs> I've learned that if I want to write something that has a shot at being well, I want to read it now. So I need to know when I need to know when I can expect it. <laughs> So uh, it's supposed to come out in 18 months. Um, okay. We'll see if that happens. But I write very slowly. And, you know, these books are very, you know, I'm writing it as a memoir. And so it's very yeah. painful and embarrassing. And um, well, so some, sometimes while I'm writing it, the, the self-love move is to 
walk away and lie down on the ground. (laughs) Having Uh, just written a book myself, if somebody had told me what it took to write a book, I might have said no. (laughs) It's hard. So, So I get it. It's hard. It's hard. And yeah. There's just a lot that goes into it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. This was this was a fun conversation. It was enlightening. So much wisdom. I really appreciate it. I know that the listeners are going to get a lot out of it, too. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so grateful Dan could be with us today to talk about mindfulness and meditation. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.